Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to open it to Matthew chapter 10. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 10. Uh, If you've been reading through our Bible reading plan with us this year as a church, then you have, as of today, at least if you're on the same schedule that I am, you have read through Matthew chapter 11. Or if you're an evening reader, uh, you will read Matthew uh, chapter 11 tonight. So uh, we finished uh, the book of Revelation, and now for the remainder of the year, we will be reading through the Gospel of Matthew together. This is actually our last uh, typical midweek Bible study night for the year. So we will end our time in our Bible reading plan together as far as our Bible study group is concerned here uh, in Matthew chapter number 10. So that's where we are tonight. I want to focus in on just a couple of verses. In fact, I want to go ahead and read them tonight. Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse number uh, 32. So let me just let me read those. So everyone, this is Jesus speaking, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I don't know if when you were reading in the Gospel of Matthew, especially when you came across Matthew chapter 10, if after reading those verses, you did not have a few questions in the back of your mind. I don't know if you've read that before or read that this week and thought, what is Jesus talking about? What does he mean uh, by these contrasts that he's making? What does he mean by hate your father and mother or you don't love me? What does he mean, hate your life or you will lose it? What do all these comments mean that Jesus is making? Well, I know when I read this every single time, It always brings a little bit of confusion into my mind. There's no way that the God of peace would be referring to the fact that he came for any other reason. So what does Jesus mean? Why does he write these words? Well, as I was reading this this past time, for some reason, all I could think about was this phrase, gear up. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense at at this moment, but the reason why this phrase in particular came to mind is because I I thought about the preparation that Jesus is, is taking or doing when it comes to his followers. What he's thinking about in the future that they will soon have to face, and all I really could think about was when I was a kid and I had to get ready for different events that had a lot of different uh, uh, parts to the process. Let me give you an example. Uh, When I was a kid and my mom would get me ready for football practice, I'll never forget all the thousands of things that had to get put in the right place before I was ready to go, right? Had to have my helmet, my shoulder pads. Did I have all the pads in my my pants? Where was my girdle? Were my cleat spikes in? Did I have my mouthpiece? Like what, what, did I have everything that I needed together before I was ready to get there? There were essentials that had to be in place. I had to gear up so that I could be ready for what I had to do next, right? Running around our house like crazy people, trying to get everything together 
together so that I would be prepared for what was coming next. I think about a big hunt that maybe you have coming up and you're looking for all the gear that you need before you can leave, right? Do I have my gun? Do I have my ammo? Do I have the warm clothes that I need? Do I have hand warmers? Do I have my boots? Do I have the socks that I was looking for? Where's all my wool stuff, right? I'm thinking of all these things that I've got to get together to gear up so that I will be ready for what I'm about to embark on. To be honest, I'm thinking about Jesus preparing, in a sense, his disciples for what I would like to call a war. There's a battle ahead of them, and Jesus wants to get them ready for what's ahead. They don't realize it. They don't know what's coming. They don't understand everything that he's saying to them, but he does, and he's preparing them for what's happening. As a matter of fact, beyond thinking about my own life, you know what I thought about the most? I thought about now as a father how extremely frustrating it is to get my kids ready for even the simplest of tasks, right? You know every morning, son, you've got to brush your hair. You've got to put your shoes on. You've got to brush your teeth. You've got to put on deodorant. You've got to get your water bottle ready. You need your backpack. Where are your, ah, right? Like, have you experienced these moments before? Something so simple that they knew every single day becomes this extremely frustrating moment in my own life because they can't get ready. Whether it's for school, whether we're packing to go somewhere. Listen, at my house, when Kayla gets our kids ready to go on a trip, it might be a one night trip. It takes them like 17 days to get ready. I'm like, how hard is it to put the clothes you need in a bag and be prepared and gear up and be ready to go? Like, how hard is that? It drives me crazy. We can be doing the simplest things, but there is so much that they forget. There's so much that they don't do. There's, I mean, the moment we walk out the door, I don't have this. I told you 800 times you needed that, right? I'm reading Matthew 10 thinking about Jesus preparing his disciples for what's ahead, and all I could think about is the frustration I have over just the simplicities of getting my kids to go to bed at night, right? And then I thought, I have those frustrations with my kids, and they're not even that big of a deal, right? I'm going to bed, who cares? Like, get there when you get there, right? Jesus is preparing them to start the church, and yet he's never angry, he's never mad at him, he's never really even frustrated. He is always patiently caring and nurturing. He is always helping them to get ready for what comes next. And I thought to myself, listen, I get so frustrated with my kids because they forgot their water bottle again. How, how frustrated should Jesus be with me every day? Because I know what needs to be done. I know what needs to get ready. I know what I need to do to serve him. I know. He's told me a thousand times. He's shown me a million different ways. He's given me a thousand different opportunities. And yet there I am again, looking at Jesus, complaining about a water bottle that I knew I should have gotten. And yet even though I get so frustrated with my children, never once... Does Jesus get angry? 
Never once does he throw me to the side. Never once does he think I'm not okay. Instead, he continues to prepare me for the battle. Instead, he continues to help me gear up. Instead, he continues to wait for me as I follow him. And I'm processing all that information about my kids and about if I think that about them, how much more should Jesus think that about me? And I'm reading Matthew 10 and I'm going, wow. Once again, Jesus is preparing his followers for what's to come. Once again, he is patiently equipping them and gearing them up for the life that they will now live for him. And as I'm reading it, there are three particular things that Jesus tells his disciples to prepare them for following him. And so tonight, with whatever questions you might bring to this passage in Matthew chapter 10, I want to show you three things in particular that this passage does does communicate to us that is extremely important as we prepare to walk with Jesus, to be his disciples and change the world. Here's the first one that he points out. Number one, disciples, disciples confess Jesus before men. Here's the first thing. Hey, each of you, um, it's going to be difficult. The world's going to be tough. It's not all going to go the way you want. In fact, listen, you're going to have to confess me before people. That's what Jesus says in the beginning of this section. Look back at verse 32. Here's what he says. So everyone who acknowledges me or confesses me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But he contrasts that, right, with the next verse. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The word acknowledge is a form of the word in Greek that means to say. It's the word lego. It means in this context, the form that's put together, the construction, it means to confess or to declare. But what's interesting about this word is that it means more than simply uttering something out loud. Matter of fact, listen to what Herschel Hobbes writes about this word. He says, to acknowledge is to declare a thing to be true and to commit oneself to it. It's more than just saying, it's committing. He goes on, he writes, A Christian confession, therefore, is an open declaration as to the truth of the gospel in Christ and an open commitment to him. Our Lord leaves no room for secret discipleship. This is more than just a verbal statement. In effect, here's what Hobbes writes, in effect, Jesus says that the person who says before men in word and in deed, he is mine, Of him, Christ will say before the Father, he is mine. You see, it's not just a verbal consent. You say, Danny, how do we know? Listen to this from James chapter 2, verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. We would not call demons disciples of Jesus, even though they know who Jesus is. Of course we wouldn't. So just acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God with all power, that's not enough. No, it's deeper than that. This confession is more than just verbal consent. It is is actual commitment. Here's how Paul describes it in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Listen, this is a very famous passage of scripture. Paul wrote, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It is not simple verbal consent. It is a deeper commitment to the union that you have with Jesus. It is no longer you, but he who lives in you. There should be no doubt who you belong to and that you think others should belong to him too. So how today do disciples confess? How do they acknowledge Jesus? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts that went through my mind as I was reading these verses. First of all, you confess Jesus by what you say. This is pretty obvious, right? Confession is audible. So obviously what you would say is a big part to what you confess. This is with your lips. This is with your words. You let people know that you belong to Jesus. Now I know this seems obvious, but I can tell you right now, I remember years and years and years of doing student ministry and how shocked I would be when I would be on campus at a lunch or an event or a ball game and I'd be hanging out with some of the students and they would introduce me to a friend of theirs and then they would tell the friend who I was and the friend who by the way is like a best friend of theirs the friend would go I didn't know you went to church and I remember thinking how how often we take it for granted just the simple statement I believe in Jesus right I confess that he is the one that I follow so obviously they confess Jesus before men yes and you do that by what you say. Also, you confess Jesus by who you serve. This is the action-based side of evangelism or your faith in Jesus. Everything you do, every action you have should reflect that you belong to Jesus. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. He said, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, I want to make a a connection here, because I think a lot of times Christians think, well, you know what? I'll just live out my faith, right? I don't have to say anything. I'll just let my actions speak for themselves. I'll just live a good life. I'll just do good deeds. I will just act like Jesus in love, and that will be enough. And listen, you certainly should act like Jesus. You certainly should live out your faith, but don't take for granted the first part. It's not just about what you do. It is is also about what you say. We confess Jesus by what we say. We confess Jesus by who we serve. Let me show you this other one. You also confess Jesus by where you stand. I think this is an interesting concept because it's one that I wrestle with the most. How can I stand for Jesus and also love people? How can I be against sin that I know Jesus died for, that I know his light wants to shine out of the darkness? How do I stand against things that I know are wrong, but at the same time have a presence in the world where I can still have a connection, a relationship with them, so that I can tell them about Jesus? Confessing Jesus before men is about what you say, who you serve. It's also about where you stand. How do we balance loving like Jesus and standing on his truth? Because friends, listen, disciples of Jesus live according to God's standards, not this world. We don't follow the opinions of our culture. We follow the opinions of of Christ. And we're careful, right? We're cautious. Matter of fact, we've got every extreme that you can think of in this category. We've got people who come out of the gate bold and abrasive, and if you don't think
think, what I think, you're going to hell, turn or burn, right? Like we've got all that kind of stuff that's always out there for people to experience. And then we have the other side. We're all going to end up in heaven one day. Just love each other, hug each other, b- believe in something. Every God's the same God. We'll get there, right? There's two extremes. How do I find some middle ground where I can love like Jesus but still be in the world around me, the culture around me, so that I can be effective for the gospel. This is difficult, right? This is a balance that each of us have to wrestle with as we decide what, what can we do and not be not standing for Jesus, and what can we do to stand for him but yet still love people like Christ. We are confessing him by what we say, who we serve, and where we stand. Now, in this moment, Jesus obviously is making a contrast between those who confess him and those who deny him. So I think this is where it's important to understand how we can do all the things that you see on the screen right now, but also still love people enough, stay connected to people enough that we have an opportunity to share the gospel with people who are different than us, right? Jesus doesn't want us to nix everybody off who doesn't believe what we believe. He wants us to stay in the world, but not of the world. So how do we balance this? Well, I think this is what Jesus is referring to between the differences in confessing and denying, right? He's certainly in these verses talking about people who reject him, but I also think this discussion can be applied to followers of Jesus who at times will deny him. Now let me explain, because you're thinking, how, you just said a disciple confesses him, but now you're saying a disciple denies him. Well, I think we can have moments where we do, not a lifestyle of rejection of Jesus, but certainly moments. There are plenty of times that Jesus' disciples find themselves denying rather than confessing. As a matter of fact, I looked at just some examples from the Gospel of Matthew, which is where we're reading uh, for the rest of this month, and I came across the moment that Jesus calls Peter Satan. You're going to get to this moment in Matthew chapter 16. Peter's trying to stop Jesus from his mission of dying on the cross to save the world. You remember this moment, and Peter says, I'll never let you die, Jesus. And Jesus is like, stop being Satan. Like, get behind me, right? It's a weird moment where, I mean, you may call people some ugly things, but I don't know how many people you've actually called Satan, right? That's kind of a new low for anybody. And so it's this weird moment where Peter is getting in the way of what God actually wants to do. I think about a little bit later in Matthew 18 when the disciples are fighting about who will be the greatest in the kingdom, right? They're missing it still. They should be humbling themselves before Jesus, honored to be in his presence, but no, they're arguing about who will be on top and who they'll get to rule over. I think about what's coming up in Matthew 19 when the disciples didn't want the children to come to Jesus because they were getting in the way and Jesus rebukes them, right? As a matter of fact, he makes a comment in Matthew 18 where he says, if you don't become like one of these children, you might as well hang a millstone around your neck and be dropped to the bottom of the ocean. That's an interesting concept if you want to deal with some issues in your own life. I don't recommend that, I guess, but read what Jesus says. Or I think about in Matthew 26, where Peter, by the way, you'll remember this, literally denied knowing Jesus. You say, Danny, I don't think Peter was a Christian. He denied Jesus. Of course he was a Christian, right? He led the greatest movement of the church. How could he be a disciple and deny? Well, we all have moments weaknesses, right, where we make mistakes. I know I've had plenty of these moments in my own life where I backed down rather than stood up. You've had them too. Maybe you say, Danny, I still wonder what you mean. Well, let me show you a couple of things. We can deny Jesus in silence. This is probably the most common, right? 
It's not that we actually said anything. We didn't actually deny him. We didn't actually do anything bad. We didn't join in with anything, but just the fact that there was moments where we had the opportunity to share or the opportunity to stand, but we chose to be silent. You can think about a few of these probably in the back of your mind. This would be a reference to denying Jesus. We can certainly deny him literally in speech, right? Like Peter does this in Matthew 26. And we may in fact have had moments like this too, where we actually deny Jesus by what we say rather than speaking up for Christ. Now it not, might not be this thing like, no, I hate Jesus. I would never, you know, go to church. It may not be something like that, but it may be something where they're associating you with a group of people that you do believe with the same convictions as they do, but because they're talking about it so negatively, you don't want to get involved. Involved. And so you're just like, you know what? I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't believe it. I don't do that either. Right? Yeah. Those Baptists, they're weird. Yeah, I agree. Like, why are they weirdos? And then a couple of days later, you're at church with a bunch of them, right? <laughs> or how about this? We can deny Jesus in situations, right? Moments where we had the opportunity to represent Jesus, but instead we remained reserved. I can think about plenty of times where I've denied rather than confess. I, I think Jesus is certainly talking about people who reject him altogether. I certainly think he's talking about disciples who have moments of weakness where they deny rather than confess. I also think he's talking about people who seem like they follow him, but they really don't, right? We might call this hypocrites or as Jesus calls this several different times. We might call this good fruit versus bad fruit. He talks about that in the gospel. Or wheat versus tares. He talks about that in the gospel. Or sheep versus goats. He talks about that in the gospel. As a matter of fact, listen to this from Jesus in Matthew 25. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left there is clearly a moment where confessing Jesus will ultimately matter his disciples needed to be prepared for the battle ahead needed to gear up because what it meant to confess him would not be the easiest decision of their lives matter of fact Jesus makes these comparisons to the Pharisees they act one way but they're really just hypocrites maybe he's thinking so heavily about this context because within the very 12 disciples that he's preparing and training there is Judas the one who professed but never confessed you with me it's very relevant to their group of people where are we when it comes to our relationship with Jesus as disciples are we confessing him before men or have we found subtle ways to embrace denial at least in ways that we can accept and sleep at night or are we confessing him? Are we showing him to the world? I'm always reminded in these types of conversations about a story that I've heard many times. As a matter of fact, I may have shared it with you before. If I did, act like it's new. It's about a preacher who's preaching one morning, and he told his congregation in the sermon, he said, you must ask Jesus to come and live inside of you. Well, during the response time, a little boy comes down and says, preacher, I'd like to ask Jesus to come live inside of me, but I'm so small and he's so big. I'm afraid if I ask him to come live inside of me, he's going to stick out all over the place. Of course, that was the greatest moment for the preacher. He smiled and he said, that's exactly what he wants. When others see us, they should see Jesus sticking out all over, right? Should be obvious who we confess. Should be obvious who we follow. There is no secret 
discipleship. Jesus doesn't bring you in the back door so that nobody sees your association with him. You either confess him or you don't. Disciples of Jesus confess him before men. They want Jesus sticking out all over so people can see the one that they follow. Let me show you the second thing that Jesus points out here, especially to these early followers who are about to embark on a battle, on a war. He says, disciples not only confess Jesus before men, but they comprehend Jesus's ministry. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look back at verse 34. It's an interesting passage. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. That seems really strange, by the way. As a matter of fact, in just a few weeks, we will actually celebrate the fact that Jesus does bring peace to the earth. It's called Christmas, and it's a big deal in our society. So why would he say, does it come to bring peace to the earth? He goes on, he says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Why does he say these words? Well, obviously Jesus didn't want to turn people against each other simply because he wanted people to fight. We know that's not the intention of Jesus. Jesus just knew that people would be divided when it came to following him. You ever heard all those different comparisons before where it's like, there's only two people on the face of the planet. There's those who like church and those who don't. Or, I'm trying to think of something because I don't have anything. There are only two types of people in the world. There are those who... Whatever it is, right? This designation <laughs> that, that separates them. This is the moment that Jesus is talking about here. There are people who follow him, and there are people who don't. As far as God is concerned... There are only two groups on the face of the planet. There are those who belong to Jesus, and there are those who reject him. Does Jesus cause that? No. But because he comes, and a decision must be made, when he came this time, it was not with peace. It was with a sword. Why? Because it divided every relationship on the planet. Listen, it's interesting to think about the peace that we have with God because of Jesus, right? Inward, inwardly, we have peace, us and God. However, that peace with God may result in problems with others. Think about that. My peace with God might in fact result in, pro in problems with others. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 11. It's a beautiful moment. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a little child leading a lion to find a nice cool drink of water? How many of you would encourage your children to do that? I guess if you don't like them that much, maybe, but of course you wouldn't, right? A lion would eat them. Isaiah's prophesying about a day when that will be no more. He goes on. He says, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Imagine that. The ox that he now eats, he'll just be next to eating a little bit of straw with the ox. Isn't that lovely? 
The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that a beautiful scene of the future? Can I tell you something, friends? That prophecy from Isaiah was not the first coming of Jesus. It was the second. This coming would not be as Isaiah prophesied. As a matter of fact, the word for bring is also an interesting word. It means literally to cast or to throw. Now, I think this particular word helps us to picture the difficulty of following Jesus and the commitment that it will require. We might think of the peace of God that rules in our hearts, but when it comes to relationships in this world, Jesus may actually be throwing a sword into the mix. Let me give you a picture of this. For some who choose to follow Jesus, this might be just simply not getting invited to as many social gatherings as maybe you got invited to before, right? Some of those friends who like a certain scene maybe don't want the guy who's talking about Jesus all the time to be around anymore. You understand what I'm saying? And if that's the extent of, of your separation and your relationships being hindered, then praise God, that's all you have to deal with. For others, it might mean that your family disowns you because of your faith, right? Move out, get out of here. You can't be with us anymore. You're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. For others, it could even mean physical harm or death because they choose to unite their lives with Jesus. You know what Jesus knew? He knew his disciples would comprehend his ministry, but he knew that many of their families and their friends never would. Jesus wants us to live in peace. Listen to this from Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But even in this verse, there seems to be occasions where peace isn't possible. Now, obviously, we should do our best to honor our parents. We know this from Exodus chapter 20. It's not telling us to curse our parents. Obviously, our families should love one another. Read Ephesians 6, 1 through 6. Listen to this from Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Listen, the goal is that we love people, even our enemies, so that they can come to know Jesus. Unfortunately, this is not always simply up to you and to me. Let me give you a picture of the division that Jesus talks about. This is from John chapter 3. You might remember the beginning of this section. These are the words of Jesus. You ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But listen to how he continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see the division starting? You believe in him, you're not condemned. You don't believe in him, you're already condemned because you have not believed in Jesus. But he keeps going, listen to this. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's the division. There will be those 
who comprehend the ministry of Jesus and want to surrender their lives to him, there will be another group who does not, and they want nothing to do with it, and they want nothing to do with you because you want something to do with it. I can think of numerous examples from my own life. I'll never forget my dad's dad, my grandpa, Paul Paul Cooney, that's what we called him, loved that dude. I'll never forget when I told him that I'd surrendered to ministry and I was going to be a preacher one day. I'll never forget when he looked at me and giggled and said, son, everybody goes through a phase like that. All right, Paul, Paul, thanks for the support, right? What was the difference? He didn't understand the big picture of what Jesus wanted to do with the world, but I did. I'll never forget my best friend's name was Will Holloway. As a matter of fact, Will, if you're listening right now, I'd love to chat with you in the future just in case he checks out the podcast. You know, it's pretty popular out there with the folks. Anyway, me and Will, best friends. If you saw Will somewhere, guess who else you saw? Danny Boudreaux. We were inseparable. He was my best friend. I'll never forget when I was a teenager, we both went to a church service because we were chasing after some girls who were in the youth group there. They invited us to come to some get-together that was happening, and we were certainly excited to be there. Parents dropped us off, me and Will hanging out, having a good time. The two bros, man, we're going we're gonna to conquer the girls of the youth group. That sounds really weird. I should have said that, but it's going to be great, all right? <laughs> all these Baptists, they don't know what's about to happen. <laughs> I heard about Jesus that night, sitting next to Will. Gospel was shared. Gave my life to Christ. Will... He didn't. A couple weeks went by, we didn't hang out as much. A couple months went by, we never hung out. A couple years went by, I never saw Will again. You say, Danny, what was the difference? Did Will hate you? Did you hate him? No. One of us chose Jesus and the other didn't. And so guess what happened? Separated. One of the greatest relationships I remember as a child. Listen, this wasn't just going to happen in the life of those early followers. This wasn't just going to happen in my life. This will happen in all lives of people who choose to follow Jesus. He doesn't want us to hate people. He doesn't want our relationships to fall apart. He's not trying to get rid of peace, but it will happen because to choose Jesus means to say no to everything else. I know, it sounds difficult. It is. Matter of fact, one of my favorite quotes, I think I have it on here, it may be in your notes, it's from a guy named G.K. Chesterton, great theologian. Here's one of the things he said that I love. He said, Jesus promised his disciples three things. They would be completely fearless. All right. Absolutely happy. Yes, Jesus. And in constant trouble. Ouch. Not sure. Not sure I like the third option, Jesus. Listen, here's what I know. Love as boldly as you can, never forgetting that Jesus died for you even when you were his enemy. Romans 5, 8, right? If he died for you when you were his enemy, how much more should you love the enemies of Jesus? However, know this. There are moments where all you can do in relationships that are falling apart is move on, pray, and seek opportunities for God to use you to restore relationships in the future. But listen to me, friend. If not, we follow Jesus. That's it. Disciples confess Jesus before men. They comprehend Jesus's ministry. Let me show you this third one. Disciples count Jesus as more. They just do. They count Jesus as more. It's what he shows them at the end of this passage. Look back at verse 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, that seems a little tough, Danny. I agree. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
This is an interesting moment in the gospel account as he prepares his disciples for the battle ahead. As he tells them to gear up, he helps them to recognize that he has to be everything that they need. As a matter of fact, when he talks about importance, he gives three in particular. He tells them that to be a disciple, you've got to count Jesus as more. Well, more what? Well, from these verses, it's pretty understandable. He's got to be more important than any other relationship in your life. Does it mean you can't love your father or your mother or your son or your daughter? Of course it doesn't mean that. Does it mean you should hate your spouse and that will make you love Jesus more? Of course that's not what he means. Although for some of us, we might be getting really good at that, so we'd be really holy if that was the case. But that's not what he means. What he means is he's got to be the most important relationship in your life. The intensity of our love for God has to be like this. It, what he means is you've got to count Jesus as more important than yourself. He tells us to take up our cross. Do you know what that means? It means dying to yourself and living for Jesus. He's telling his disciples they must lay down whatever vision, whatever goal they had for their own life so that they could live for him. Here's what this means. It's so contrary to our culture. This follow your heart stuff that dies when you die with Jesus. That uh, 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 speak your truth stuff that dies when you die with Jesus. That you can make it if you try hard enough stuff. Friends, can I give you bad news? You can't make it anywhere. I don't care how hard you try. But can I give you better news? You can make it far beyond you can imagine. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. Will you lay down yourself and count Jesus as more. Listen, ultimately more important than life. How can I gain by losing? This is one of the greatest paradoxes of the Bible. To truly find life, we must lose it for the sake of Jesus. There's a story from the dark days of the Second World War. There's so many things at that time that were in short supply, but in this particular moment, England needed silver for defense projects. They were looking everywhere they could to find more and more silver. At this time, Winston Churchill asked if there were any sources of silver that had been left untapped anywhere. Is there any silver? He was told that indeed there was. The churches and cathedrals had a few old statues of saints that had been cast in silver. Churchill smiled and said, well, it's time to put the saints back in circulation. <laughs> you know what he was saying? He was saying it was time to get that silver back to a useful cause. Friends, listen, we were never meant to be statues resting inside the church building. I don't care how pretty you might be. We were meant to be ambassadors sent out among the nations to make the name of Jesus famous. Maybe it's time the saints get back in circulation. Think about it like this. How do you confess Jesus before others? Don't think about how disciples confess Jesus before men. That's great. Jesus teaches us that. Yes, disciples of Jesus should do that. Scratch that. How do you confess Jesus before others. Should disciples comprehend Jesus' ministry? Will they follow him where other people won't? Will that get confused at times and people won't understand why you love Jesus so much? Absolutely. But don't think about disciples in general. Think about you. How do you comprehend Jesus' ministry in your life? How do you 
Count Jesus as more important than anything else. Listen, Jesus never, ever waters down how difficult following him will be at times. Never. But he also never shies away of telling you how glorious the return will be. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Don't, don't miss this end part of 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Oh, that stinks. Whoever loses his life. Oh, that, that stinks, right? Whoever loses his life for my sake, don't miss it, will find it. You want to know what you should do? You should follow every word of Jesus. You want to live the happiest? You want to be the most successful? You want to live the dream? You can. By being a better version of yourself? Of course not. By following your heart? No. You can do it as you lay your life down and embrace the life of Jesus. It's risky business to be a Christian, but it is the best business. How are you following Jesus as his disciples?